last uh, few days out in Wyoming with uh, Mike Carew and Bill Wright and a number of others of you, and I definitely miss seeing you all and being here. Uh, it was actually the second year that I was able to go. Uh, last year was my first year, and I remember very vividly, right before I left, Chris Weeks came up to me and said, so what do you want? You know he's not asking just whatever, whatever I want. That'd be too good to be true. What do you mean? Well, what do you want on your tombstone? <laughs> that, that was not the encouragement that I, I ho- had hoped to hear from him. Uh, but it's a really good question for us to ask. It's a really good question for us to consider. What is the end going to be like? And are we ready for it? And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 25. And this is a really special section within Matthew because it's the last major section of Jesus' teaching before the end of his life. And his disciples are with him. They were just in Jerusalem. And if you remember in chapter 24, Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem and their hard-heartedness, how Jesus had longed to gather them up. And then they left the temple, and they went up to the Mount of Olives, and they're at this kind of lookout point, and Jesus' disciples are asking him questions about the end, about when he will return and come back and set up his kingdom and what that will look like. These are really important questions for us to ask. So this morning, we're going to be looking at three parables in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look first at the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Secondly, we'll look at the parable of the three servants. And then finally, we will look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. Let's pray before we get into it and ask the Lord's help as we do so. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for the joy of gathering with my brothers and sisters here. Lord, you've been so good to us. Uh, Even this uh, progress with our building addition, Lord, we just thank you for your faithfulness and kindness to us through this process. Lord, this morning as we study Matthew chapter 25, I pray that your spirit would help us to honestly search our hearts and ask these important questions from Jesus' teachings. Father, I pray that your spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and help us respond in ways that are pleasing to you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at these three parables, but before we do that, the teacher and me just cannot resist a little bit of quick review. So when we come to a parable, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So a pretty simple definition of a parable is that usually it's a simile or short story told to illustrate a single truth or answer a single question. A simile, if you remember, is just a comparison using like or as. And this is basically to say usually a parable has one main point. It's an illustration. It's an example. And most of the illustrations or examples that Jesus uses, they're a little bit difficult for us because we are 2,000 years removed in time, and we're also quite removed in culture. And so some of the ways that they did things are different than how we do them. This is really important because there's a temptation for us when we're interpreting parables. We want to get just a little bit more out of it. And sometimes we want to push the parable for more information than what is intended. Or we want to assign meaning to things 
that are not clear. So we're going to try to put on our interpretive seatbelts this morning and just remember that it's a short story used to illustrate usually one main point. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids, some translations say virgins, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps. But the other five who were wise enough to take were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming! Come out and meet him! All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for us all. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or hour of my return. Okay, as I mentioned, there's some difficulties of cultures and customs. And the first one might strike you as the way they're describing a typical wedding and its celebrations is a little different than how we, what we are accustomed to. So let me paint for you a picture to the best of my ability of what I've been able to learn, which was harder than I thought it should have been, about a wedding 2,000 years ago in Israel. It begins with two homes. You have the groom's home and the bride's home. And before anything wedding-oriented can happen, there needs to first be some negotiations about a bride price, about a dowry, and it turns out that what would often happen is the groom's family would go meet with the bride's family and they would make some arrangements and settle on an agreement for what that was going to look like. And for a dowry for the bride, one of the important factors of that was sometimes it might be cattle or a monetary gift, but that was given to accompany the bride and to help them in establishing their new household. But that was also intended to be a deterrent against divorce, because if the husband decided to divorce the wife, that was something that he would need to pay back or give back, and that might monetarily cripple them or create some financial hardships for them. After that had all been agreed upon, it's time for the groom to set out to go and meet his bride. Now, if the groom lived in the same city as the bride, this might not be a very long journey. 
In the parable that we're talking about, there is an extended delay that takes place before the groom arrives. It might be from a faraway place. It might be relatively close by. Then once he's arrived, they have their ceremonies. And this is basically the formal establishment of the agreement of uh, the bride price or the dowry and what's going to happen with that. This is not the main party. This is not the main event. I know for us, you know, saying yes to the dress and the ceremony and the photos, that's all a huge part of it. This was not the main show. That was yet to come. The next thing that would happen after that's all agreed upon is that the groom would escort the bride through the streets. Basically, there's a parade and a celebration about this new marriage that has just taken place. And this leads up to the big celebration, the wedding feast, which would usually be back at the groom's home if that was close by. And the wedding feast and celebrations could go on sometimes for days up to a week of time. It was a very big deal and a huge celebration. Now, as I mentioned, if the groom lived far away, they might have the wedding feast there uh, at the bride's home and make arrangements for that. But this would be a typical structure for a wedding 2,000 years ago. So looking at this passage, there's a couple of things we want to highlight. The first one is that as we saw in verse 5, the bridegroom was delayed. The passage doesn't tell us why. Remember, it's a parable, so we don't want to go crazy trying to speculate on why he's delayed. But what we know is he is delayed, and even the foolish and the wise bridesmaids, they all become drowsy and fall asleep. So that's not the problem. The key distinction here between the foolish bridesmaids and the wise ones is that the wise ones brought extra oil. Now, if you look at the picture here, this is a little clay uh, oil lamp that oil would be poured into and there'd be a wick and it would slowly feed the fire. Most likely what the bridesmaids had would have been torches that would have cloth dipped in oil and kind of wrapped around the torch to sustain the flame for a long time. The wise bridesmaids had prepared for the possibility that the groom was going to be longer than they thought in coming. The foolish bridesmaids probably just brought their torch with what was on it, hoped that was going to be good enough, and they went with it. Perhaps they didn't care to take the extra preparations. Perhaps their heart wasn't into the celebrations. We don't really know. But the key distinction is having enough oil and that the wise had extra. Now, as we mentioned, this is a parable. We don't want to push the details too hard. One of the interesting things that's always tripped me up with this parable is kind of the math of it. So if you have five foolish bridesmaids, you have five wise ones, the wise ones have some extra. So if they just pooled all their extra oil, maybe you could have had seven or eight bridesmaids who had enough to get in. Be that as it may, while it may strike us as being inhospitable and not caring enough to share, the point in this parable is that the oil that is had does not transfer. And I know in real life, yeah, you would probably share with these other bridesmaids or something, but here Jesus' point is that the wise bridesmaids have prepared and they have brought extra oil. They are able to withstand some delay on the bridegroom's coming. And the, 
their preparations do not transfer or cannot be shared with those who were foolish and did not prepare. So the main point of this first parable is simply this, that the bridegroom's return will seem long in coming, but a wise follower is prepared. The wise follower is prepared for that delay. Now, I tried to think, okay, how do we actually apply that to our lives? And this is how I think we do that. First and foremost, we cling to the truths of the Bible. Our compass, our guide in a world of ever-shifting values and competing claims for what is true, what is false, we cling to the truths of Scripture to guide us. And we ask for God's help as we endure hardships while we wait for the king's return. I don't think that it's a coincidence that this passage comes right on the heels of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 about the hardships and the tribulations that we will experience. His followers need to be prepared for the fact that Jesus might seem like he's taking his time in coming back. Cling to your compass. But I also want you to notice that there's a theme in all three of these parables, and it's a theme of a reward. The reward for a wise follower who is prepared is that they participate in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And while this is a parable centered on Jewish customs 2,000 years ago, when Jesus comes back and there's the wedding feast of the Lamb, it's going to be a celebration beyond anything we could possibly hope to imagine. And you are not going to want to miss it. And you definitely don't want the door shut and to find yourself locked out and hear the Lord saying, believe me, I never knew you. Let's look at the second parable, the parable of the three servants. Oh, before I get to that, let me quickly read. I like how... Grant Osborne summarized this passage. He said, We do not know when the Lord is returning, and we dare not say, Not today. He will come at the time of his own choosing, and at that, and at that time we are all accountable for our lifestyles and priorities. For those who are not ready and miss it, it will be too late. There will be no second chance. Now let's look at Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. The parable of the three servants. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Then he left on his trip. The servant who received five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who had received one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground 
and hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip, and he called them to give an account for how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward. Sorry, I lost my place there. came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I have earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Some translations say, enter into the joy of The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest. Then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a couple things I want to highlight in this second parable. The first one is the repeated theme that the master is gone for a long time. He goes on a long trip and his return is a long time in coming. The second thing is that before he leaves, in verse 15, it says that he divided his money to his servants, or some translations say slaves, in proportion to their abilities. That as he looked at these three servants, he recognized the one to whom he gave five had the most ability, and the one who he gave one bag to had the least ability. Now this might have been an important factor in how the third servant responded, which we'll come to in a minute. The first servant, he's given five, and he invests that money. Now, this is probably not him depositing it into a mutual fund, sitting in his lawn chair and waiting for that uh, interest and those dividends to accumulate. 
Most likely this means that he started a business or that he helped finance some businesses or endeavors to earn this money. The second servant, it explicitly says he also went to work. They were not just kicking their feet up, having a good time, hoping the master might not return like the third servant was perhaps hoping. The first servant receives the commendation, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I think if we're honest, most of us want to be the first servant. We want to be the person who's the most gifted. We want to be the person who has the most abilities, who's the best at what we do. But if we're honest, probably many more of us fall into the category of that second servant. We might not be the one with the most ability, but notice that the second servant, even though he is given less, does the same action of working to earn his master more money. And he receives the same commendation of well done, good and faithful servant. And I say this to you with the hope that this is an encouragement to you. Because it's easy for us to look at other people, people around us, and say, man, that guy's really gifted. That woman can really articulate things. And wish that we had the gifts and abilities that those who are around us have. But if we're honest and we deal with and reconcile with the fact that maybe a lot more of us are the second servant, God hasn't asked you to do what he's asked the person next to you to do. God has given each of us gifts and abilities that he has wanted us to have. He's placed you in your family, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your spheres of influence. And so the question is not, is someone else more gifted or does that person have the gift I wish I had? But the question is, are you faithful with what God has given you? And I want to caution you against doing what this third servant did. He probably scorned the fact and resented that he had the least ability in his master's eyes. This slave failed on multiple accounts. He was both wicked and lazy. He was unwilling to do the hard work trying to earn his master more money and he failed as a slave who was entrusted to do his duties as one. But it's also clear that he had some resentment for his master. And his master takes him to task on his excuses, saying, okay, you say I'm a harsh man, that I harvest crops I didn't plant? You could have at least put your money in the bank and earned some interest on it. But the servant was so lazy, he didn't even care to do that. And I want to I caution you this morning against comparing and making excuses. It's really easy for us to compare with other people and say, well, I don't have that gift, so I can't really do that thing. That's not the issue. Don't make excuses and don't compare. Don't compare with people who are more gifted than you, and also don't compare with the person who's even less faithful than maybe you are, and then say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Notice that the third servant, he does not receive any commendation, but rather he is condemned by his master, and his relationship with his master is severed, and they are separated as he is thrown out 
into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The main point of this parable is this. While the master is away, he expects his servants to be faithful with what he has entrusted to each of them. I want to encourage you to consider not what God has entrusted the person next to you with, but what he's entrusted you with. Because that is what you will give an account to Jesus for when he comes back. How do we do this? We do this by diligently using the gifts and abilities God has given us to please him and to bring him joy. God has made each of us uniquely, and I promise you that you will find nothing more rewarding than taking sometimes that step of risk and that step of faith to be faithful using the gifts and abilities God has given you to serve him. And for each of you, I hope this is an encouragement, it can be different. God isn't asking you to do what he's asking me to do necessarily. And I want to put you guys on the offensive. Ask the question, when you see someone in need or there's something you can help with, is that something I can do? Is that a need that I can meet? Is that a person I can go visit and I can go encourage? Also notice this continued theme of a reward. Here in the second parable, we see that a, com a commended follower who is faithful shares his master's joy and celebrates with him. That is going to be something to behold when our king returns and we hear good and faithful servant enter into the joy of your master. Let's look finally at the third parable in verse 31. The parable of the sheep and the goats. And before we get into this, I want to just say a word of caution about this. This parable, remember, there's usually one main point. This parable is not about what you need to do to be saved. Okay? These parables are about marks of a true follower of Jesus. Let's begin in verse 31. Jesus continues teaching and he says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats at his left. Now, we don't know this for sure, but it's very possible that as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem, he very well may have seen a herd of both sheep and goats mixed together. And at nighttime, it was important to separate the sheep and the goats because the sheep had their woolly coats and they were able to do okay in the cold a little bit more separated from each other. The goats, on the other hand, didn't have that thick coat and they needed to herd together and be closer together for their warmth at nighttime. And it's very possible that Jesus and his disciples see a mixed herd and Jesus sees this as a teaching opportunity to say, this is what it's going to be like when I come back in glory, separating the sheep from the goats. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, 
and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then, these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? You can imagine they're almost like people who have received an anonymous gift and they dare not hope that it was actually for them for fear that maybe it was misdirected or the mailman messed up on it. They don't recall and they're surprised to hear that this is what they're being commended for by Jesus. Then listen to how he responds in verse 40. And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Notice the contrast in verse 41. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Or some translations say angels there. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry, or thirsty, or, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and not help you? Then he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So notice that here, both the sheep and the goats are surprised by what they hear from Jesus. The sheep are pleasantly surprised to find out that as they cared for the least of these, they were actually caring for Jesus. But the goats, they probably were making an excuse. They were probably saying, well, yeah, sure, I would, I would show hospi hospitality and kindness to Jesus if he came. Those other people, kind of get out of the way, I'm waiting, for, I'm waiting for Jesus. When he shows up, then I'll do that right thing. This is a fascinating principle that what we do for others, we do as unto Jesus. And this is actually affirmed in Acts chapter 9, in a fascinating passage where the man that we know as the Apostle Paul has not yet been converted, and he still goes by the name of Saul. And he's traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus. He has letters from the high priest to bind and shackle followers of the way, followers of Jesus, and bring them back to Jerusalem to basically be tried or be punished. And as he's on his way there, 
he sees a blinding light. He's knocked from his horse, and he hears a voice, the voice of the risen Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, with trembling, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, Saul hadn't persecuted Jesus personally, but Saul was persecuting the followers of Jesus, and in doing so, he was persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus told Saul, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name, and use Saul to spread his message all over the known world, uh, which the book of Acts traces out. So we see that principle and that's really the main point of this parable as well. That whatever we do to the least of these, we do for Jesus. A righteous follower is compassionate. Not making excuses, not saying, well, I would do that for Jesus, but I wouldn't do it for the people whom he loves. How do we actually apply that to our lives? I think simply to explain and difficult to do is that we show the love that God has given us to those who are difficult to love. Let's be honest. We all love being around people who are easy to love. People that we get along with really well, people who are life-giving. That's, that's not hard. But we all have those people in our lives and I'm sorry for you for when I'm that person for you guys, but we all have those people in our lives who are difficult to love sometimes, who it's really a challenge. But I want to encourage you that the way that you love the least of these shows your love for Jesus himself. And notice that here also, finally, is also a reward for those who do what Jesus has asked. A righteous follower who is compassionate, is blessed by the Father and inherits the kingdom. They get to be in the presence and goodness of God for all of eternity, sharing in the joy of God and in the joy of his people with eternal life. But that is not the case for those who have rejected Jesus and rejected those whom he loves. For them, there is eternal punishment separated from every ounce and shred of the goodness and joy of God. There's nothing more dreadful we could possibly imagine. So what about you this morning? Do these three marks of a true follower of Jesus describe you? Are you prepared for the delay that we are going to feel in Jesus coming back? Are you being faithful with what God has given you, with where he has placed you, and with what he has entrusted to you? Don't make excuses. Don't compare. Are you compassionate, not just with the people who are easy to love, but with the difficult people in your life? If these describe you, Praise the Lord. That is wonderful. Again, this is not how we earn salvation, but I believe these are the marks, these are the fruit that a true follower of Jesus should produce.
if these do not describe you. Take an honest reflection because there will be nothing more dreadful than thinking, yeah, I'm good with Jesus, I'm prepared, I'm a follower of his, and to hear, believe me, I never knew you spoken from Jesus' lips. This phrase that we read in the parable of the ten bridesmaids calls back what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus warned, he said, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. I implore you, make sure that that verse does not describe you today. And if it does, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Cling to him because he's your only hope. And if you've been lying or deceiving yourself, please stop today.